0: Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the 2020 U.S. Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. We've got a really exciting podcast for you today. Uh, later on, I will be speaking to the distinguished academic and professor of American literature, Sarah Churchwell, who's written a really interesting book about the American dream and America first, these two ideas that have been energizing um, the two polar opposites ideas about America and about America's place in the world and the world's place in America. Um, so it's a really interesting conversation about America's history and America's future. and um, way that these ideas are still exercising the political debate today here in America. Um, But first, I'm going to do a quick news roundup of what's been happening this week, um, both in the primary news and in the uh, US political news. Um, But before I do that, I have a a programming note um, and a a request for some assistance from my listeners. Um, So as a quick programming note, as you may see, as you may have seen, I have been doing one podcast a week. Um, Those podcasts vary in length from about half an hour to over an hour. Um, So some of them are getting a little bit long. Um, I wanted your advice because I am considering a change to the podcast format and I was hoping you could give me some input as to what works better for you. Um, I am considering whether I should break my podcast into two shorter episodes, um, one going out on Friday and one going out on Monday. I would probably structure that as the long interview portion of the podcast being on, uh, Friday and then the news roundup, the gut check game, um, and any little tidbits for the week would go out on the Monday. Can you let me know in terms of how you listen to podcasts and your consumption behaviors? Would you be more interested in having one long podcast or two shorter ones? Tell me what works best for you. I'm always thinking about you, my listeners. Um, have you got a long commute? So a nice long podcast works for you or do you want something short, sharp that you get on with your day let me know um, best thing to do is if you are on twitter tweet at me at karen k-a-r-i-n-j-r or if you're using the anchor mo- mo- mobile app you can leave a voicemail directly in the um, app so quick programming mode thank you for that um, and now a little news roundup So primary news this week, Democrats um, uh, have announced, Tom Perez, the DNC chair, has announced after extensive consultation with lots of people within the party, including presumably a lot of prospective candidates, that the Democrats will be hosting 12 primary debates in this cycle that's three more debates that were held amongst Democratic candidates in the previous cycle. Um, you may remember that in 2016, there was some criticism leveled at the DNC um, and allegations that Hillary Clinton's team, who had many allies within the DNC, um, had acted to limit the number of debates. Um, those criticisms seem to have been addressed in, in this cycle. There are 12 debates. That works out to being about one per month. Um, obviously, we have quite a lot of candidates and no clear frontrunner runner candidates, so this is a very different case uh, than in the 2016 cycle, I think it's actually really good news. Um, The more debates, the better, as far as I'm concerned, for all sorts of reasons, not least because Democrats need as many moments as possible when we are the ones driving the national conversation and when the conversation is about the majority of Americans who support our policies and how those questions should be addressed. And the less time possible spent Chasing Trump's offensive tweets, the better. Um, not saying that we shouldn't be covering the Trump administration. We absolutely should. But I think there has been an. Underemphasis on the kind of serious policy questions that Democrats are trying to um, address, everything from healthcare to wage insecurity, um, wage stagnation, economic insecurity, um, even even immigration, and what a what a genuinely comprehensive immigration reform package could look like. There are real questions we have to solve as a co- as a nation. Um, I am looking forward to seeing those debates. Hopefully, a lot of those questions will come out in that process. Um, so having. Having said that, turning now to the chaos and confusion and general democratic nightmare that is the, the Trump administration. This week's big news, um, Defense Secretary Matis has has quit um his his role as defense secretary has been one of the things that many people believe has been constraining some of the more military uh, sort of the more dangerous um, instincts um, in foreign policy of the Trump administration his resignation it was not a I want to spend more time with my family resignation he very clearly wrote in his uh, letter of resignation that he was leaving because he profoundly disagreed with the president's policies on foreign policy. In particular, he objects very strongly to the president's announcement this week that he is withdrawing U.S. troops from Syria and also drawing down quite a few troops from Afghanistan. Now, this is a, a really complicated issue because, of course, Many people, including myself, would like to see less American military entanglement um, in many parts of the world. The difficulty is that when we have an existing presence in a deeply unstable nation such as Syria, um, the withdrawal of our troops creates instability in what is already a very violent ongoing conflict. Um, There is a great danger that, that not only could American troop withdrawal make life infinitely more dangerous um, and deadly for people in Syria? And of course, we are already seeing Syrian refugees um, uh, uh, coming to Europe and and all around the world. There is a a desperate ongoing crisis in Syria. Um, So there's a real danger that American troop withdrawal will will make that situation directly worse in the near term and also just destabilize um, the the power structures there. It's such a tricky question. There is no obvious winning scenario for Syria um, right now, but it is worth noting uh, that the American troop withdrawal is very much a policy that Vladimir Putin in Russia has been hoping for, pushing for, the less entangled America is in, in the Syria conflict where um, where Russia clearly supports um, the side of the current uh, Syrian government, um, the happier Vladimir Putin will be, and it seems that he is getting his wish in that. Um, so it is just worth making note of the fact that uh, Secretary Medes is objecting vigorously to Trump's close alignment with the policies of Russia. Um, Let's consider what that means in light of what we know about Trump's relationship with Russia, his ongoing business relationships with Russia, um, his, of course, you know, recently it came out that he was as late as um, the summer of the the 2016 campaign, he was negotiating a prospective huge business deal in Russia. He, uh, what had supposedly reportedly offered Vladimir Putin a $50 million penthouse in a proposed Trump model. Moscow Tower, um, which is all just weird and gross and sleazy, but um, has serious po- foreign policy implications. So, Secretary Mattis has has resigned clearly in protest against uh, Trump's foreign policy. Um, this is a, a problem, and it's it's difficult one for the Trump administration. Um, but it also provides him an opportunity to put in place a defense secretary who will be more aligned with a Trump view of the world. And uh, um, God help us. That 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 doesn't sound like something that anyone outside of the White House really wants. Um, hey ho, there we are. Let's watch that really carefully and find out what happens next. Um, Democrats should be aggressively pursuing uh, concerns. I would I would argue should be aggressively pursuing pursuing concerns about how Trump's foreign policy is being set, and especially how he is using our men and women of the military. Um, In further Trump-related chaos, there is a very strong likelihood at this point that the government is going to shut down in the very near future. Um, There's been a lot of confusion this week because at first Trump seemed to signal that he would be willing to sign a um, continuing resolution to fund the government for the next few weeks, Even if it didn't include wall funding, um, he has now rolled back on that promise and Paul Ryan, um, and his leadership in the House therefore scrambled to bring, uh, to bring up a bill that, um, would would actually fund the government, but with funding for the wall, um, it is very clear that there are not enough votes to pass that bill in the Senate. So that bill's not going to go through. Trump says he won't sign any funding bill that doesn't have um, doesn't also include funding for, for the wall. It's worth saying there are a lot of other things that Democrats and Republicans might argue over in the in the funding process, but this is very much just about whether or not Trump's getting extra money for the wall. Um, This is a a resolution just to, just to, a bill to just fund the government for a few weeks, just keep it going. Um, and Trump objects to keeping the government going unless he also gets extra money to build a wall, which security experts say wouldn't do much anyway to stop um, the flood of, uh, of, of of immigration into the country. Um, so we are, again, we are all on tenterhooks to see what will happen. Um, it seems to me that apart from all the other things that this is, this is a... a a Trumpian way of governing by reality TV convention um, because he has no particular interest in whether or not the federal government continues to function, as far as I can see. Whether the government shuts down or not is just a plot point in a reality TV drama, as far as Trump is concerned, not actually – You know, for example, the livelihoods and well-being of hundreds of thousands of American federal workers, not by all means the services and, uh, and and benefits that American taxpayers are entitled to having paid their taxes. Um, it's just Trump's opportunity for, he seems to treat it as just an opportunity for a climax in some sort of big reality TV drama. Um, that is not how I think of the federal government. And I think it certainly is not how the majority of Americans think of the government, but, um, it makes for gripping television, which is which is th- the one thing that Donald Trump is good at. Um, he may be good at other things. I don't know him personally. The only thing I've ever seen him be good at um, in terms of delivering excellence in public life is his ability to create reality t- reality TV drama. Although I say that, I didn't actually like his show. So there you go. What do I know? Perhaps he's not good at anything. Right. So a lot going on this week. Um, Let's move on. I want to introduce you to Sarah Churchwell, our guest speaker for this week. I am delighted today to be speaking with the distinguished Professor Sarah Churchwell. Sarah is the Chair in Public Understanding of the Humanities um, at the University of London. Um she is a uh American like myself um but living in London she is a specialist in American literature culture and history across she says the long 20th century so that's from about 1890 to the present day um a lot of her work focuses on the role of literature in American mythology and iconography and just thinking about kind of the way we talk about American conversation and it's in that respect that it was really interesting I was really interested in talking to her today about her latest book, which is called Behold America, which is a look, um, a detailed look at two kind of common ideas and phrases to describe different visions of America, the American dream and America first. Uh, the research for this book drew out of her interest in F. Scott Fitzgerald, um, a great American author of, um, if you could say, the sort of the Gilded Age and this conversation about what it means to be an American. And um, Fitzgerald was so much the, the creator of a lot of articulation of ideas of American identity and, um, struggle and, uh, the 20th century concept of ourselves. And I think it's interesting to me always to see the way that we play out political debates in cultural terms and cultural debates in political terms. So without further ado, um, I will, um, introduce you to Sarah. Um, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, as I enjoyed talking to her. So welcome, Sarah, to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on, uh, Primarily 2020.
1: (laughs) Thank you for having me.
0: Um, I was really happy to have you come and talk to me today because um, having read your book, I thought it was great to talk about some of the things that have been coming up during the Trump era Um, in the context of we often see things discussed in the context of comparisons to, say, Europe in the 1930s and 40s or to other parts of the world when they're talking about um, rising authoritarianism or the debate between democracy and authoritarianism. But what I like about your book is you're talking about a uniquely American history um, of Democracy and its discontents almost is is the way I, you could talk about it. Um and you've set out two kind of very big ideas that you argue have been present for a very long time in American culture and conversation, one being the American dream and the other being, America first, which of course, Trump has kind of adopted as his unofficial secondary slogan after make America great again. Um, Can you just talk me through what you think those two big ideas mean and how they've played out against each other?
1: Yeah, well, um, so basically, I thought both of them had very surprising histories as phrases. um, And that history was something that um, has really been uh, overlooked all, all but entirely. Um, this, yeah, obviously, there's some attention paid to the history of the phrase the American dream, but in a very um, abbreviated and also in a very kind of circular way where people always assume that we know what it means because of what its meaning is now. And so we think it always meant that. And um, and my research, particularly into um, The Great Gatsby, which is really where this all began. I wrote a book about Scott Fitzgerald and The Great Gatsby. And... The Great Gatsby was written before the phrase The American Dream was popularized. Um, but of course, we now understand it as the great novel of The American Dream. And that kind of inspired me years ago to, to dig further into the history of the phrase and to look at when it emerged um, and, and how it, how people understood it at the time. Because that was really what I was trying to do with my research into Fitzgerald and Gatsby was to recover a notion of that as a contemporary novel and to forget the the kind of, you know, the hindsight and the retrospective interpretations and to say, well, what did Scott Fitzgerald think it meant? And what did the people who read it, who who read the novel at the time think it meant? And basically I applied the same question to the American dream. If you, if you ask somebody in the 1920s or the 1930s, what is the American dream? You'd get a very different answer from what you would get today. But we tend to talk about those meanings, as I say, as if they're self-evident and as if they go back to the founding of the country and they don't. So um, so I was already doing that. And at the same time, again, having, been, having spent a long time researching the American 1920s in particular in our political and cultural conversations in the 20s, I also knew that this phrase America first had been incredibly dominant Um, In the 20s and 30s. And then when Trump decided to resuscitate it, people started talking about it as a phrase that had emerged in 1940 with Charles Lindbergh. And that's just simply wrong. It's factually incorrect. And as I say, it's not just that, oh, you can find one or two early instances of it. It was incredibly dominant and it shaped all kinds of political realities. So at first I was just interested in in digging more into those meanings of America first when Trump started um, using it again. And then really to my surprise, I discovered that the American dream and America first were in a kind of very obvious tension from the beginning. And they really represented two different visions of America um, over the last century or so. And The American dream, far from being the way that we think of it now, is this kind of um, shorthand for free market capitalism, for upward social mobility, for individual striving and the rags to riches. Um, It actually emerged 100 years ago as part of a national conversation about inequality, about the growth of monopoly capitalism um, after the Gilded Age, about the robber barons, about the fact that. 1% of the country had 50% of the wealth and 99% um, were going in want and even those phrases stretch back to 100 years ago and what they said was this would be the death of the American dream because the American dream was of democracy, it was of egalitarianism, it was of opportunity for the many not just for the few. And you know that idea is pretty much the opposite of the way we use the American dream. So um, it was. was it, is it
0: fair to say it was almost a critique of the Gilded Age?
1: Yeah, it absolutely. Was that? That's what em- it emerged out of a conversation on the left as a way to talk about how to um, how how to uh, uh, redress the problems that the Gilded Age had created. But the point was they weren't saying that the um, that the emergence of multimillionaires out of the Gilded Age. They didn't see that as the embodiment of the American dream. They saw that as a threat to the American dream because the American dream was of egalitarianism. And by definition, vast private wealth is not egalitarian and it doesn't protect equality a- of opportunity. So they saw that an aristocracy was being created out of this vast wealth and they said, that's un-American, that's what's un-American and that will be the death of the American dream. So now I think you know most Americans would say that becoming a multimillionaire is the realization of the American dream. But they said, this this will destroy the American dream because the American dream is about democratic equality and economic equality. Um, And you can't, and that doesn't coexist easily or at all in their view um, with private wealth. And even when the American dream was used in conversations on the right, with from more conservative voices, it wasn't it wasn't exclusively or uniquely um, used on the left when it emerged. But even then, it was used to talk about liberty and uh, liberty and democracy and fighting for democratic opportunity. So the so the idea that it's somehow you know I mean now you'll hear right wing pundits on TV tell you that the American dream is inimical to any kind of regulation on capitalism, to any yeah. curbs on capitalism. But the phrase emerged to argue exactly the opposite point. And, and for me, it was very liberatory to discover that you know, as I say in the book, that we've inherited these meanings that diminish our understanding of our own country and really of our own opportunities. And so to be able to come back to somebody like that and say not only is the American dream not opposed to social democracy, it was basically born as a phrase in order to argue for it. So at the very least, you cannot say that regulated capitalism and some notion of the welfare state as it emerged um, is opposed to the American dream because the history of the phrase Repudiate <laughs> that idea. I was really struck.
0: It really made me sit up straight in my chair when I was reading a part of the book, and you talk about Roosevelt. Proposing four freedoms freedom of speech, freedom of worship. And then the two that I really went, wow, I'd not heard that before freedom from want and freedom from fear. Um, and then in 1947, Truman, when he became president, revised that and he spoke about three freedoms freedom of speech, religion. And then he took out freedom from want and freedom from fear and added freedom of enterprise as the final third one. And it really struck me on all sorts of levels that the ambition of aspiring to freedom from want and freedom from fear is so deeply at odds with the kind of almost process orientation of freedom of enterprise. Freedom of enterprise is a way of saying you should be free to work under a particular system, whereas freedom from want and freedom from fear is actually a very bold aspiration. Um, And it was really startling to see an American president talk so, so boldly about potential.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it connects deeply to um, a phrase from the great writer Walter Lippmann, who was one of the earliest important writers to use the phrase the American dream in in some kind of systematic way and to start to um, help popularize the phrase and he wrote about the American dream in relation to what he called the fear economy. And that was a phrase that struck me, it sounds like in similar terms to the way that the Roosevelt's for freedom struck you, that I just thought, oh, the fear economy, that's it. That's what we've yeah, created. Yeah. We live in a fear economy and the United States is existing in a fear economy. Um, and, and everything that you're driving toward is fear of uh, deprivation and you know, fear of want, fear, you know, of, uh, fear of fear i suppose um <laughs> but, you know that but that but it is a kind of fear of fear right i mean it is a kind of anticipatory fear that we all have to deal with of the fear of deprivation the fear of loss of medical insurance the fear of old age and you know will i be will, will anybody care about taking care of me right so that is a kind of fear of fear because it's a very open-ended fear yeah. and but it's all of course driven by the notion that there's nobody else to take care of you and you have to absolutely take care of yourself but as you say within a system that's actually rigged to make it very difficult for you to do that and then you'll get blamed when you fail to do that because of the because of the fetishization of individualism and the idea that everything is down to the individual which of course is a deeply dishonest Uh, um, and and distorting way of describing society. You know, the idea that Mitt Romney is a self-made man, I mean, is just ludicrous, right? But yet that's something that, or, you know, let alone Donald Trump, right? (laughs) That's something that, you know, millions of Americans accept unquestioningly the idea that these people made it on their own when of course they made it with an enormous amount of social help, with family help, with educational help, with you know, living in a in a place where again, where they had freedom from want and freedom from fear and could go on and make a fortune because of those advantages. But if you're struggling with daily want and fear and told that you're that your society has no obligation to help you with that, and that cap that kind of radical free market capitalism is the answer. And you know, I'm no economist, but it seems to me that 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 very clearly the the, the deregulation of capitalism, you know, from Reagan onwards um, has a great deal to answer for in the disintegration of American society and in our and in our you know, current state of political near collapse, um, you know, and the, and the and the way in which corruption and a, and a kind of, you know, naked greed driving the GOP and the Democrats to a lesser degree. Um, has you know, I mean I just I recently you know had a it was we were all everybody was talking of course about the great encounter between Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer and and Trump and and my husband is British. And, of course, you know, I, I, it won't come as a surprise to you that I hugely admired Nancy Pelosi's handling of that situation. Um, she was um, free from fear. I got to say that. She sure was. And but she was also free from want, right, which yeah. is the point I was thinking, <laughs> right? So the, um, that great red coat that she wore that everybody really liked. And my husband said, oh, you know, and I was among them and said, oh, that's such a cool coat. And he said, well, you know, are you going to get it? And I said, well, first of all, I don't want to be a Nancy Pelosi copycat. But second of all, I'm sure I can't afford it because this woman's worth 100 million. And he said, yeah. what are you talking about? And I said, and I said, oh, it was just this report. She's worth 100 million. Because the fact is, is we have almost no oversight of the kinds of money that are and the kinds of deals and trades that our elected representatives are allowed to make. So even the people that we feel supportive of and positive toward in his politics, yeah. you know, we feel more aligned with are making out like bandits <laughs> and it's and nobody, you know, nobody bats an eyelid at it. Yeah. And I mean, Warren
0: Buffett is always saying, tax me more. I have too much money. I don't need this amount of money. There's no reason for an individual to hold the amount of income that I that that I hold on to. And of course, wages have stagnated across the country, um, you know, and have been stagnating for decades now. So it's not just a question of of, of rich people being richer. The average working class person is not is not increasing their salary. And as you talk about the Horatio Alger story and this kind of myth of American progress, I think a lot of one of the things I was really struck by in your book, which I hadn't been aware of, is the Horatio Alger myth, this kind of rags to riches myth. They weren't even actually getting that rich. It was more like a dream of a comfortable middle class life, having come from an immigration background, from an immigrant background. Um, It was a completely different vision of what success looks like than the kind of wildly aspirational. Let's all be billionaires and crush the little man. It was more, you know, come to this country, do well out of yourself, have a good idea, live a decent life, exactly, um, a comfortable life.
1: A comfortable. But it was a vision of kind of comfortable middle class prosperity, a kind of bourgeois vision of happiness, not this crazy aristocratic version that the whole world seems to have embraced. I mean, I just got back from Mumbai and we were talking there about about the film Crazy Rich Ages. Um, and and in, and indeed in India, how uh, there's a similar, um, you know, that the that this uh, um, um, exhibition of spectacular wealth, that the big story in in India over the last while has or you know, one of the big um, stories has been that there's a, a a family having a wedding that's going to cost a hundred million dollars. Um, uh-huh. And this kind of, you know, mind-boggling display of wealth is is uh, is is a is a is a nouveau aristocracy that that's what we're creating. But yeah, in the 19th century in America, the goal was was as I say was much more kind of comfortable notion of bourgeois pr- prosperity. And it it struck me as I was doing the, the research into this that um, you know as I would kind of anecdotally interview people, not interview people, but discuss with people what their um, notion of the American dream was. And it it struck me how many people felt that embedded in the idea of the American dream was the idea that each generation Mm -hmm. would do better than the generation before it. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in that because that was not key to my understanding of it. Of course, I was familiar with that idea. But if you had sent me an essay um, before I began researching (laughs) the book on, like, you know, what is the meaning of the American dream? I'm not sure I would even mention that as being a key or core principle to it. But an awful lot of people that I spoke to did see it that way. And I was interested in that because, of course, that was only true for about two generations. Um, It was only really since the Second World War that... Anybody could say that their children were definitely doing better than they had done and that they thought that their grandchildren would do better again and that that held true for a couple of generations. Basically, I mean, I'm a Gen Xer. It basically held true until my generation. And yeah. then, you know, we're kind of the, the cutoff point. And it hasn't been, you know, it's not clear to me that I'm going to live as comfortably as my parents did Um And the, I mean, but I'm still okay, right? I'm not struggling the way that young people today are struggling to get on the property ladder, right? So it was kind of my generation where it started to choke. And and it seems to me that 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 mistake, which is kind of again to me, is sort of embodied in the ideas in in the Great Gatsby, this idea that America, that Americans would always be trying to get bigger. And and that that would be how we would conceive of greatness was that it would always be that everything expanded and everybody got richer and everything got grander and everything got bigger and and that and that actually what we were supposed to be working on was getting better and that. That's not necessarily bigger, obviously. And that and that this idea that every generation would do better than the one after it is is not sustainable, you can't infinitely expand wealth. And so the and and that actually, of course, that's partly what has at least as an ethos has led to this um, to this grandiosity of people's aspirations that, you know, my parents had two houses, so I need three houses. I mean, you know, what are, how are people thinking about this? And so I started really thinking about sustainability and thinking that's, that's what we should have been thinking about is as you say, with the Warren Buffett example, do I have enough? And if I have enough, like really enough, I don't mean, I don't mean that we all have to become philanthropists, but if I have enough, to be comfortable and to do well, then maybe at the very least, I don't need to think about my children having more.
0: But isn't that isn't that theory that possibly there's only a limited amount of wealth to go around, isn't that also a big driver of what's happening on the other side of this equation with the America First concept? Because it strikes me that a big part of what's happening in the um, isolationist or restrictionist ethos here is this idea that there's only so much to go around I'm going to get mine and how can I stop others from getting what should be my share yeah
1: that
0: that feels like a big undercurrent to this conversation and has been for a long time and certainly it's Trump's idea that there's a limited (laughs) amount of cash and I'm going to get as much as I can which means those guys have to not get it and if those guys happen to be of a different race or a different different ethnicity come from different countries speak from a different accent that makes it all the easier yeah
1: absolutely I mean I think that the, the, we're, we're living in a society that, that, um, that profoundly conceptualizes power and, and money, you know, obviously interrelated, um, in terms of the zero-sum game. So the more I have, the less you have. And if we were really thinking about egalitarianism, if we were really thinking about equality, equality is not a zero-sum game, right? I don't lose equality when you gain equality, but power is. I may lose power when you gain power, um, and the and prerogative is so the the battles over you know identity politics um, are are to me you know uh, absolutely representative of of this idea that this the you know the so-called white lash or white grievance. Um, that it is it is too simplistic to, to simply call that racist. That's not, to me, how it plays out, although it has a, a strongly racist element in it, but it's not merely racist, if that's not yeah. the wrong word to use about racism. Um, but, it is, um, but it is about um, prerogatives and advantages, privileges. It's, so to me, it is about white privilege and that yes. the two things go together. You can't just talk about whiteness without talking about privilege and what they feel as a grievance and as a disadvantage is their loss of an unfair advantage. Um, And that is a zero-sum game mentality of how this works, is that, you know, as women and black people gain the ability to assert their own uh, experiences, to assert their own rights, to assert their own, uh, um, you know, right to self-determination, certain groups feel that they have less ability than they used to have to call the shots. And guess what? That's true. And, you know, for those of us who have been historically excluded from that, those kinds of prerogatives, it is indeed hard to muster up a lot of sympathy. Um, but we have to be realistic about the anger and, and the real sense of grievance that is driving a lot of this and the, and, the, and the closing of the ranks. So the idea that what they're doing again, and this is what America First has always stood for since the 20s, is restricting ideas of who gets to be American. Um, restricting ideas of what a representative American is going to be. And, you know, I've actually just been writing about this today, that, you know, if you think about the common man, it which still has such a powerful hold on American mythology, um, the common man is still not construed. I mean, the example I gave in the essay I and mean, the draft I'm working on is, is still not construed as, uh, as, a Mus- as a Muslim man, for example. Um, he's construed as a West Virginia coal miner.
0: It is it is fascinating how often very good people, even in the media who mean well, will conflate white working class identity with working class identity. Um, You know, they'll start out being careful and say the white working class, but then eventually they just skip the white parts and just talk about the working class as if Mm -hmm. the views of white working class people are representative of the entire class, which is obviously not the case. Yeah, exactly
1: and and as if they're representative as if they're even homogenous in and of themselves, themselves which they aren't yeah. and and, as, and of course they also erase the men from that so the so then it starts to be you know becomes this vast synecdoche where you know a, where as i say a west virginia coal miner or a you know an industrial you know a, a post-industrial steel worker in you know pittsburgh who is a man um suddenly is supposed to stand in for representative americanness for the heartland for the real america for you know Sarah Palin country for all of that stuff and and, and that 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 old notion, I mean, I, I you know, it goes all the way back to the to the Jeffersonian ideal of the yeoman farmer, you know, the working class guy is the salt of the earth. Um, and that still is this extraordinary purchase on the way that we tell our national stories as you say people who are well meaning get get they, they get overtaken by this myth and they can't think about other people as representative except of themselves so women may speak for women but they don't speak for all Americans and Muslims may speak for Muslims but they don't speak for all Americans and it is this logic of, of you know in 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 rhetorical terms the logic of synecdoche but the you know the 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 example I was given, I talk about this with my students, that when they, you know, all men are created equal and you have that debate, which they find at first tiresome. And they say, oh, you know, roll their eyes and go, well, obviously men include women. And I go, okay, but so does women include men? Do you say all women are created equal? Does that include men? Well, no, it doesn't. The language doesn't work that way. All women are created equal does not include the concept of men within it. But all men are created equal we are told includes the concept of women in it. And that kind of representative logic is hugely powerful. It it shapes and influences, um, not just the the ways that we talk about our political reality, but it shapes and influences those political realities and anybody who doesn't think that's true needs to rewatch the Kavanaugh hearings.
0: I think the political realities is, is the key point, because it's amazing how much of this language, these two ideas of American first and the American dream come back again and again, even in contemporary politics. And I was very struck, for example, that when we talk about immigration, the word the Democrats have chosen to describe young Americans who are brought here by their parents without documentation, we call them dreamers, yep. because it's such a powerful sort of moral fable that we tell about America is that you come here and you dream. Um, so it, it very much is something that's got a contemporary resonance and I think will play out. But what strikes me is that the political nature of, um, these two ideas, I think has sorted itself very strongly into two tribes, um, that are aligned with party ID in a way that I don't think they would have been before, um, because of the changes in how the democratic party has worked and, and kind of the, the, the the decline of the secessionist South and, um, and the, and the, um, separatist South and, um, how the democratic party has aligned more with a diverse coalition and the Republican party has become increasingly white as the country has become more diversified. It feels like we've sorted ourselves into kind of team dream and team America first and in, in a political way. And, and that just feels like a recipe for constant headbutting. Is there a resolution inside to this?
1: Well, I think that's right. And I think that until we actually, until we can actually, um, identify what the fault lines, at at the very least, figure out what the tribes are, right? (laughs) Because because part of the problem is that the way that the tribes self-describe and the way that they perceive each other is massively disjunctive. So the Republicans will describe themselves as populist against the elitist Democrats. Um, But the Democrats will analogously see themselves as you know kind of at least the if not populist in the way that the the trumpists would talk about populism the but certainly the the party of the of ordinary people of ordinary um Americans and the and as you say of the of the um of the notion of uh, the land of opportunity of immigrant communities of urban communities of the of certainly of people of color, of um, people on the poverty line, et cetera. And so and, and so that a kind of a real populist, a, a real notion of the people versus this mythical populism and a very racially coded version of populism. Um, and, and so for you know, I'm trying to get my head around the you know the ways in which the, these notions of populist and elitist, are, um, I think, sorting a lot of these tribes. But the problem is that because you're never allowed to, elitist is obviously... um, never going to be a term of you know a positive self-identification so it's always nobody wants to be elite anymore nobody wants to be elite um except ross Douthat, who wrote that piece about how the wasps are better <laughs> which was quite extraordinary. which was extraordinary um and, and and actually denied meritocracy it was like well we wouldn't want meritocracy that's not working very well i was like this is just extraordinary anyway
0: but i mean but i mean if 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 a billionaire president of the united states who literally has a gold toilet does not self-identify as an as an elite then who does it's, Well, exactly,
1: it's but that's That's the thing, right, is that, but neither did, you know, neither did the Bushes. I mean, George H.W. Bush, to Douthat's point, was probably the last who did, who was sort of unapologetically patrician. Yeah. Um, but even his son, Somebody who calls himself a Christian, rancher, exactly reinvented himself as a Texas rancher so that he could be a populist and spoke the language of the common man and did all the kind of shuck stuff so that people, you know, said, oh, he's one of us and we can have a beer with him because he's a Texas rancher. No, he's not. He's from the he went to Yale and he grew up in Kennebunkport. Give me a break. Um, but the but the you know, the Jacksonian story of the of the you know, the self-made man from you know the pioneer uh self-made man who's a kind of backwoods um tell it like it is uh and uh you know is a man of the people but is also self-made that's that really kind of jacksonian strain and and you know jackson did become rich um but the story was always about his humble origins and um and so i think that mythology again remains very very powerful so all you have to do is identify yourself with that mythology and it can erase as you say being born into the lap of luxury um and and you know and that even trump could get away with it because it's mostly rhetorical so okay, okay.
0: so this this podcast is about our next election and it's really important that we find a way forward and i would argue the the current president is taking us into the 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 worst possible dregs of the white nationalism and america first identity we need a way out of it if you were advising a 2020 candidate who wanted to reignite a vision for the american dream any candidate imagine your dream candidate pick the person doesn't matter what advice would you give them? How would you tell them to tell this story to America? Uh,
1: well, look, first of all, and I don't mean this to be difficult, but I would listen. I wouldn't talk. I mean, I yep. think that one of the things that were <laughs> that, that one of the problems is that, you know, we're all kind of self-appointed experts on everything. And and um, and everybody is, you know, um, spouting off bombast. And the, these people, if whoever were imagining that I would admire enough to think that I wanted them to be president, that's somebody I would learn from and not lecture. Yeah. Um, but um, but and, and so I don't mean I mean I mean that really seriously, right? That I think that you know we need to we need to respect the people that we say we want to lead us a little bit more. Um, yeah. That said, I would certainly I would share with them this idea and say, look, I don't know if you can use this, um, but it seems to me that there is um, that there is purchase to be had in telling this story about the American dream and saying, you know, did you know that when we started talking about the American dream, it wasn't only about, um, about individual prosperity, it was about collective well-being. That was what we used the American dream to talk about. So people like those nostalgic stories, right? You know, the this, the American dream used to be like this, and we have to recover it. But we always tell the same story about like the 1950s version of the American dream, and to say if you go back to an older version, and say this was about collective well-being and collective responsibility. This was a vision of, um, as I say in the book, about common wheel. Not commonwealth. And I know that word is too archaic to be a successful campaign slogan. <laughs> there is a lot of appetite for people to be talking about collective well being. Yeah. And to say the American dream was coined to talk about our nation as a society that aspired to protect each other's collective well being and collective opportunity, mutual opportunity and mutual well being. And that, I think, is what people on the left are really, really hungry for, is that message. Um, We saw that with the success of Beto. And and I think that, and and, and that would be the other thing, is that the American dream in in those early usages was fundamentally about decency, about people being decent to each other. And about and it was about tolerance and pluralism. It was about saying, I mean, one of the things that amazed me in my research was that I found, you know, the the way that civil rights historians and, and this is, you know, experts on Martin Luther King will tell you that King was really the first person to in American history to join the phrase the American dream to notions of civil rights and social justice. And that the whole power of the I have a dream speech in 1963 was his harnessing this language of the American dream for the first time to a vision of of real social justice and saying black people have been excluded from the American dream and they need to be included in it. But I found examples from the 1930s of people on the right saying that uh, that racism would be the end of the American dream because the American dream was a dream of social justice, and saying that anti-Semitism would be the end of the American dream because the American dream was a dream of tolerance and pluralism, and these voices, as they say, were not on, only on the left; they were on the right. And so the and that idea predates Martin Luther King's speech by some twenty five years at least. Um, I was able to find examples of it, so I started to suspect that actually far from um, inventing something new or having an epiphany that Martin Luther King in that speech was recovering an older idea that he probably heard when he was growing up because it was Mm. pretty prevalent. Um, And so I would say, let's recover that. Let's start hammering home the idea that the American dream is not about getting richer than your neighbor. That's not what it was ever supposed to be. And go back to those founding ideals and those founding principles and point out that that this idea has been inclusive enough to uh, encompass social justice, racial justice, uh, liberalism, tolerance, plurality for a century and more. And, Uh And there's no reason for us not to start using it in those ways again.
0: Interesting. It almost feels like we could use the expression "Make America Great Again" to mean the exact opposite of what Trump means it by.
1: Quite right. But I don't think <laughs> I think that I think that phrase. Um, I think the ship has sailed on that. That shit That phrase is dead, Personally, and we I don't need to bury it, it ever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and it is deeply coded, right? And again, I show yeah. that in the book. And what is, is greatness? That,
1: yeah. Exactly. And and that and that you know there there are way too many examples. Of um, a very similar phrase being used a hundred years ago in, yep. in contexts that make it very clear they were talking about make America white again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is to be to be clear, that is what Trump means by it. I mean, oh, no and I think you you make quite clear in the book America first. I have always thought of it historically as an isolationalist slogan, but you make very clear it's not just about foreign entanglements. It's very much about the purification of America itself, racially and ethnically.
1: It's, about, it's white ethno-nationalism that's tied to that notion of isolationism and protectionism that is about this kind of, it's a, it's a deeply exceptionalist idea that there are certain types of Americans who are the best, and they're really the only types that are real Americans or 100% American, and that everything else is un-American. And that logic takes us straight to the birther movement. Um, so the, so that is absolutely these, these, um, America first has, has, been deeply embedded as a, as an ethno-nationalist code, which is really what my book, I set out to prove in the book, um, uh, for a hundred years. And these guys know that they're, they're very consciously recovering that meaning.
0: Well, look, there's a lot more in the book. Um, The book is called Behold America. Definitely have a look at it. Um, And actually, for my listeners benefit, I didn't even get to cover the fact that Fred Trump was arrested at a Ku Klux Klan rally in the 1920s. So there's a lot more in this book you definitely (laughs) want to look at um, to have a have a read. Sarah, are you able to stay with me for a minute and we can play the gut check game? Sure. Great. Great. so, for the benefit of my first-time listeners, this is a game we play called Gut Check, and the way it works is we—I have here a Red Sox baseball cap, um, <laughs> true to true, true to my I New England origins. Saying, I don't know how I feel about that. Sorry, got it. I gotta gotta be true to me. Um, <laughs> In my Red Sox baseball cap are, I think, upwards of about 24 names of people who have been discussed as possible 2020 candidates. Now, I'm not saying all of these people will run or want to run or would do anything at all if they did win, but they're just names. And I thought it would be interesting to randomize the process of the primary um, and just get a sense early in this early in this cycle, how do we feel emotionally about the prospect of some of these people if they were the nominee? And the answer may be, we don't know who these people are yet. That's part of the point of trying to figure out how this game works. All right. So I'm just going to reach into my cap. I'll pull out a name and then we can uh, just take turns giving our quick 10 second reaction. Okay. Here's an interesting one. The 2020 Democratic nominee for president is Jerry Brown, governor of California.
1: (laughs) Uh, I hadn't thought about that one. Um, Yeah, I feel pretty good about that.
0: I I think Jerry Brown was running for president in 1992 when, when Bill Clinton was nominated, wasn't he?
1: He was absolutely. But and the thing is, is, you know, he was kind of laughed at as this, as this, you know, kind of crazy left winger. Um, But now he's got the track record of turning California around and it's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's deep in the black. So um, I feel good about somebody with his kind of progressive credentials who can also run an economy. That well, boring. that's,
0: well, that's <laughs> the thing. I mean, you say progressive credentials, and he definitely is, is of the left. And yet the fiscal discipline that he's brought to California, which was effective, effectively a failed state, he's, yeah. he's brought it back and it's successful and thriving. And, you know, exactly. we should all be so lucky.
1: Exactly. So I feel pretty good about that. The country right. could
0: use that. <laughs> <laughs> that was some of that would be no bad thing. All right. Yeah. Interesting. I guess, I guess my only gut reaction would be, I love all of that. On the other hand, he is really old. Mm. So, Absolutely.
1: and he look. I mean, there are a lot of people who really don't want us to nominate another white man. Yeah. So it's an old white man. So there is that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't. I wouldn't discount someone for being a white man. Nor would um, I. By any means, there are some wonderful white men out there. I'm married to one, so that's <laughs> that's
1: great. But um, you know. Absolutely. but I think the the question is, you know, obviously as I don't have to tell you is is who who is going to excite. Um, Democrats and uh, you know, and particularly bring out young voters, but um, but I do um, you know, and I, so I think there's an argument to be made on uh, on both uh, sides of it. Um, I agree, you know, no, nobody's going to discount white men, at least hopefully, a few people are going to discount white men prima facie. Um, but you know, that said, I do also think that um, the that there's an argument to be made that not only um, it, would he be qualified, you know, just through through who he is and what he's done but um there's an argument to be made that in a country as divided as ours um although it would make the younger progressives unhappy to hear me say that to say this rather um that a that a white man might be what we need because it's what the gop can get behind um and you know there's a part of me that thinks you know we might have to just suck it up again and say this is what we need to kind of pull the country together um and, uh, because there are still so many people who are just not going to vote for a black woman, whether we like it or not, but that's me being very, very pragmatic. And maybe that's not the right answer. Maybe we need to be more idealistic than that.
0: I think we can be pragmatically idealistic. All right. Should we do another one? Yeah. All right. Let me just reach into my head of wonders. Let's see what comes out. All right. Okay. Um, so the name I have drawn out, the 2020 Democratic nominee is former HUD Secretary Julian Castro.
1: You know, speaking of not a white man. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know enough about Castro's record uh, to be able to speak in any, uh, speak with any conviction about this. Um, What does your gut say? Um. Well, what I've heard is positive. And look, my, I was going to say this at that outset, my gut about all of this is that I want Trump out of the White House so badly that I feel positive about all of these people. <laughs> they're all amazing. <laughs> they're all, all of them. Well, They're all better than he is. Yeah. So, which is a very low bar by, indeed. By a lot. Um, the soft bigotry of low expectations. <laughs> um, but, um, but it, you know, I am. I mean, I know, you know, and obviously there's all kinds of debates about the Democrats can't just be anti-Trump, but uh, I personally am so strongly anti-Trump that I and I will also vote out um, the party that has propped him up because I'm outraged. I'm absolutely disgusted at the at the rank corruption and cynicism and disingenuousness and power grabbing of the GOP leadership. And I simply will not vote for a single one of them until they clean house. So any, any Democrat gets my vote over these assholes. Do you know what? I am
0: with you on that. In particular, the Republicans who I never thought highly of them, but congressional Republicans have shocked me by their abandonment of patriotic identity, democratic
1: norms. I mean, to my core, I am shocked by their total abdication of their sworn duty to the country and to its laws and to its to its precepts. Yeah.
0: Literally um, sworn. They swore an oath on the I, Constitution. Exactly.
1: Literally sworn. I mean, so no, I—that I, is the thing. Trump didn't shock me. A- anybody with a brain could see how absolutely uh, venal he is and amoral he is, and his whole life speaks for that. Um, but the, but I agree with you. I had low I had low uh, uh, opinions of these guys, but I really thought they'd stand up to him. Yeah. And the and the way that they have been supine, prostrate before him has just been. Uh, It has shocked me to my core and it has been repulsive. So I want them all out. And then we start over again. And I and I am not somebody who thinks that all conservatives are evil and I'm not somebody who thinks that all Republicans are evil. But I think that this Republican leadership is and they need to go and the Republicans need to take stock and start over. I think there's a sorting
0: exercise though, because I come from a a family that identifies as Republican um, and always has. And I think I've been watching members of my family slowly stop using that word to describe themselves. And in the Trump era, one by one, they've started saying, okay, I'm not a Republican. and some of them are, are Democrats now. I think there's a sorting exercise happening where a lot of the people who have a bedrock belief in American democracy and actually understand its precepts are slowly leaving the Republican Party. The danger is what we're then left with is a party that is dominated entirely by people who don't care about the principles of the country they they, they vote for. Um Julian um, Castro can fix all that, surely. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. Do it. It um, so so just to come back to him, um, he was a he was a pretty good head secretary under under Obama. He was mayor of San Antonio, I believe. Um, and uh, I have met him once when he came here to London on a trip and he was charming. So my gut reaction is what a charming man.
1: Okay. Well, All right, so we do that over the, over the man w- with no discernible charm whatsoever who's currently in the White House.
0: A hundred percent. I will take a bit of charm. We could use it. We need a, ref- <laughs> a charm refresher. Okay, the final segment of our show is my, well, the segment that I always call, What Are You Gonna Do? Um, what Are You Gonna Do just says... What can I do right here and now, long before the primary gets started, to make a difference to progressive causes and candidates? Um, and this week, I'm going to keep it really simple. There are two things that I would ask you to do this week if you are interested in getting involved and making America better by electing Democrats, which is really the only option we have right now. Um, first, if you are not already active in your local Democratic Party, wherever it exists. If like me, you are a Democrat living overseas, find your local Democrats Abroad chapter. If you are an American living in the US, in any part of America, join your local party. Don't just register to vote, obviously do register to vote, we'll come to that in a second. Um, But don't just register as a Democrat, show up to your local party, show up to their events, Um, show up to their boring meetings where they elect officers for secretary to take the minutes for things. Um, Please go and participate and be a part of democracy during the boring times when nothing particularly is happening because that is the only way that you will be prepared and ready When things get exciting um if you want to participate in this primary if you want to be a part of this election the best thing you can do right now is get into the habit of being involved and active in your local party i'm sure many of you already are and if you are then i thank you for it Um, the people who show up to party meetings are unsung heroes they are often boring but actually in between all the boring uh tedious minute taking and so forth things happen that define how the party works and where the party is coming from for the next several years and if you are not in the room now when there isn't an election taking place then you will it will be too late to make a difference to how the party works by the time the things that you care about start happening so just show up end of end of lesson just show up go to the meetings do stuff um second thing If you have not already registered to vote, and in fact, even if you have already registered to vote, um, go to either vote.org, or votefromabroad.org, depending on where in the world you are. If you're in America, go to vote.org. If you're overseas, vote from abroad.org and register. If you are an American overseas, register and request your absentee ballot in the same process. Um, there are elections every year. They're not always federal elections, but there will always be local election of some kind. Um, it is not necessarily automatic that your voter registration will carry forward from one election to, a, to the next. It is at the discretion of your voter officer, your local election officer, um, it does no harm to just put in a new registration every year. In fact, um, just get in the habit of doing it. Um, even though there's just been an election go ahead re-register um, familiarize yourself with the process look up to make sure that your vote counted um, find out most most states will give you some way of determining whether your vote in the midterm election actually actually registered if it didn't don't just get frustrated and give up find out why um, follow through on that um, just just that second step of after you voted check in on your vote um, and then register again request your absentee ballot again. keep doing it good habits. It's like exercise. You got to do it every day. Democracy. So um, that's my what are you going to do for this week? Really simple ones. Um, Thank you so much for listening. As I said at the beginning, um, on a programming note, I would love your feedback on whether you prefer two shorter episodes or one longer episode. Hit me up on Twitter and let me know. Um, Or if you're using the mobile version of the Anchor app, you can leave a voicemail in this program. Either way, I'd love to hear from you on Twitter. I'm at Karen And finally, if you are celebrating Christmas this week with your family and your loved ones, I just want to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a happy holiday season. I will be aiming to post a podcast next week. It might be a shorter one. It might be a simple one. That's fine. We'll all be stuffed full of turkey or goose. In my case, it will be roast duck, which I'm looking forward to making. Um, But I hope you will be able to this holiday season, to spend some time with your friends and family, hopefully not thinking about politics too much. And hopefully when you are thinking about it, being able to think about it in a more positive and optimistic way. Um, Here is to a happier, better, more inspiring America in 2019. I will speak to you next week. Thanks very much.